has come to your little town, Sheriff. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Be my victim. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I'm joined by dark fiction author, poet, and the host of Write and Wine, my friend Lex Vranick. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, I'm so excited too. Today, we're talking about everyone's favorite slasher, who is just a phone call away, Ghostface. That was good. That was good. <laughs> I. I wrote that this morning. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, he's definitely a spooky boy, and we're going to find out if we stand a chance. But first, I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit better than I just did. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm Lex. I write creepy things. I'm a big mental health advocate, so that's kind of what we do over at Write and Wine. Um, we chat on Twitter every week, and we just kind of offer support to writers. It's kind of a double entendre with um, drinking wine and whining about our craft. So that's fun. Oh, that's awesome. Do you have a favorite type of wine? Ooh, that's a difficult question. Um, I do have a favorite wine brand. I really love Apothic and like anything that they put out, I love. But as far as like a type of wine, it's uh, whatever wine is in front of me, I will drink. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Not wine. I've never been into wine. So I'm always curious because it. there's two reasons for me personally. And I have none of these wine questions written down. I'm, I just That's got curious cool. yeah. out of nowhere. I have a bunch of ghost face questions, no wine questions. And here I am asking about wine. But anyways, the reason why I'm not really into wine is it's, it feels like so, what's the word I'm looking for? Overstimulating. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I would even say also it's a little, because when I first started drinking wine and getting into wine and wanting to learn about it, it felt very gatekeepy because Mm -hmm. people are very, very into how you're supposed to drink your wine and what wine pairs well with what. And I'm kind of like, I like how it tastes and I'm just going to drink what I like. And I don't really need, like, like I'm interested in learning the other stuff, but I don't need people to be like kind of nose up in the air about it. Yeah. And it's like, and I'm sorry, I don't know the difference between a Chardonnay and a Okay, I can think of a second one. So that's how wine. <laughs> that's a little wait, what was it? Another white wine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. I know I don't like the red ones. Okay. And the white ones give me headaches, but I like the way they taste generally. So I tend to okay. avoid wines. Yeah, no, if you find any that are like sulfate free, because the sulfites are usually what gives you a headache. So anything mm-hmm. that's like sulfite free is usually safe. I gotcha. I usually stick with just margaritas it's safe Margaritas are great. <laughs> <laughs> well they're not safe at all I just know my limitations with the margarita <laughs> I know I like moscatos moscatos are good moscatos are very good but yeah that sounds awesome and it's like a twitter community right yeah yeah so yeah. um we started on twitter a few years ago it was kind of a, na- a NaNoWriMo specific event national novel writing month I've been doing it every year since I was like 14 and kind of, I kept making a typo when I was trying to type the hashtag 
and it became NaNoWriMo constantly. And some friends started joking like, oh, we should make it a chat. So we did. And then when NaNoWriMo was wrapping up, we were like, oh, well, let's just keep this going. Um, and now I just started a website for it. Um, and we're kind of expanding the community out. Um, hopefully we'll have a podcast down the line, all that kind of fun stuff. Thank I you. love that. Thanks. To bring ourselves to horror for a little bit, have you always been like a horror fan? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer in its original run when I was far too young to be watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It came out in 97 when I was like four. And then when I was in kindergarten, first grade, um, my best friend's mom watched it and it would kind of be on in the background. And I remember seeing the episode with the gentlemen, which I don't know if you're familiar, but they're like the creepy ones that like kind of float around the hall and they have these super creepy smiles and kind of feeling like, well, that's really scary, but I don't want to be scared of it because I'm a very anxious person about everything. And I wanted one thing that I was not scared of. So I started researching, well, how did they do that? Are those masks? Is it makeup? And that's kind of what got me into horror movies. And then I've always been into like the kind of gothic, creepy um, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe, Mary Shelley, Bram Stoker, all that kind of stuff ever since I was a kid. Nice. I'm going to get my horror card taken away, but it's something I need to admit. I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's okay. No one's going to take away your horror card. And I just feel like it's, I'm assuming we're like the same age around, like mid to late 20s. So we're we're the same generation. I feel like everyone in our generation has seen it but me. (laughs) And, And it's okay, you know, because I feel like it was something, it was very much like a cult hit, but we were also quite young when it came out. And so I feel like people a couple of years older than us were more into it because they were like Buffy's age as the show was coming out. And I just happened to be a five-year-old sitting and watching, sitting and hanging out with my friend while her mom was watching Buffy and being like, oh, hey, that's really cool. My dad kind of raised me on superheroes, but you get a lot of the Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, a lot of men. And Buffy was kind of the first take of outside of a token, like Wonder Woman in the Justice League, where Buffy, this was all about her. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm really interested in this. And I liked spooky things anyway. So I I was kind of like a fluke getting into it as young as I did. Okay, that makes me feel a little better. I love when the horror genre does that, like just takes inspiration from what came before and kind of remixing it because that's what Scream does. Exactly. Oh, by the way, everyone, we are going to be talking about all the Screams, including the new one that came out in January, it's on VOD, at least at time of recording. By the time I release this, it should, it'll probably be out on 4K and Blu-ray and DVD. And I know all the movies I think are streaming on Paramount Plus now. Um, so all of them are available. Yeah. So that being said, spoiler alert, heavy spoilers for everything Scream and maybe something else. I don't know. I don't know where this conversation is going to take this, take us. I'm making this up as I go. So we might spoil Jurassic Park. Um, that's a that's going to be a 30 year old movie. So you probably should have seen that by now. <laughs> <laughs> True that. Do you have a favorite decade in terms of horror? Ooh, that's a good question. So my inclination is to say the 80s. And that's mainly because um, my dad was a teenager in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And my parents had me young. And all of the horror that like my dad introduced me to was that stuff that he grew up with. The first 
horror, like slasher movie that I genuinely remember seeing was Nightmare on Elm Street. And he showed that to me when I was like 11, 12, 13, somewhere around there. And he showed me all of those sorts of 80s slasher movies that he loved, all the 80s music that he listened to. That was kind of what I was brought up with. And so even though I was not alive in the 80s, I have a really deep nostalgia for that stuff. It, it's almost like that's my little horror home. But I do really like 90s stuff as well, because that's my own personal nostalgia of I got to experience this stuff on my own without an influence being like, here, watch this. It's interesting with especially 80s nostalgia, because I feel like 80s nostalgia kind of is having its prime in uh, today's pop culture with uh, Stranger Things, It Chapter One, especially. (laughs) And I feel like just a lot of horror nowadays is really 80s inspired it definitely is we see a lot of and i think it's we're kind of calling back to that golden age of really slasher movies were what was popular late 70s into the 80s um and then scream kind of capitalized Mm -hmm. on that and was this like self-aware meta moment of let's pause and talk about this formula and talk about what's going on in these movies and what they might stand for beyond just masked killer killing teenagers. For sure. And it's funny because Scream is now at that point where it's influencing others. Yes, majorly. Because what comes to mind is the Netflix uh, Fear Street movies that came out last year. Yes. Oh, those were so good. I loved them. Yeah. And they're very Scream, like, inspired, having like, scenes that are direct homages to scream oh yeah well because in the first one right you have that cold open that is very reminiscent of the original scream where um because i remember even asking my dad because he's not a big for all the horror that he loves he's not big on scream and i kind of asked why and he was in that generation of young people who were kind of baited into going to see drew barrymore and then she dies in the first five minutes of the movie and all of a sudden Nev Campbell is there and people are like well who is this girl and they kind of do the same thing where Maya Hawk was just on Stranger Things um she's got this big name to herself now and she's drawing people in and you kill her off immediately so it, it was kind of cool to see it reenacted that way but also made me feel really old <laughs> Oh, no, that makes me feel, feel old, too. That's all I can think about right now. Right, oh, no. I'm like sitting there watching it and I'm like, oh, oh, this is Scream. Oh, that's so nice. They're calling back to Scream. Oh, wait a minute. I'm old enough to have a movie that I grew up with be <laughs> talked about and called back to in a modern teenage movie. I have hit that age now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that means I have to. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not to rain on your parade or anything, but. <laughs> How dare you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so before we truly get into Ghostface, I'm just kind of wondering some of your other favorite horror icons in addition to Buffy. Oh, and Ghostface. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, Freddie, Freddie Michael. You, you can't go wrong with them. Um, I was really into, with Buffy, I was a vampire kid. Um, so I watched Lost Boys, Near Dark. Loved both of those. Loved Near Dark a little bit more. I love the camp of Lost Boys, but Near Dark has this like quality to it that I really, really enjoyed. And I still wish that Catherine Bigelow had done more horror uh, because she really nailed that movie. I'm going to be honest. I'm not huge on the vampires. No, not a vampire I, guy. No, I, I, I always liked werewolves. 
so okay. I would go into werewolf movies. But when it comes to vampires, I I'm not as well uh, well educated to vampires. I haven't seen the Lost Boys are near dark. Okay, no, that's cool. Um, and I I know them. I know I know um, I know them because like Lost Boys, Kiefer Sutherland. That was uh, Joel Schumacher. It's very very eighties. I see. I know the references to it, and I've seen <laughs> clips. I just haven't seen it all the way through and near dark the same thing because that's like Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen right it's pretty much just you take the cast of Alien and dump them in a (laughs) movie and just say go go have fun um and it's a blast but it's like I'm the complete opposite I was not a werewolf person but if a werewolf was in a vampire movie then I'd be like fine because like Buffy played with werewolves and things like that and it was just I didn't have an appeal to them. I have more of an appreciation for them now. I'm actually writing a collection of um, ba- um, werewolf poetry because I kind of like the dichotomy of this like Jekyll and Hyde dichotomy that they have I and mean, kind of playing with that in poetry a little bit. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. I've seen Underworld. So okay. Underworld is fun. And Dracula. I love Can- me my universal horror. <laughs> the classics. And I've seen Blade. Okay. Okay. So I have so seen some vampire stuff. You've got them in the mix. You count uh, what we do in the shadows? Oh yeah, I love that. I haven't watched, I, I saw the movie, um, but I haven't watched the series yet. And I keep getting it recommended to me, but I'm in one of those modes where I'm like, I am only rewatching the things that I already know how they end because I'm just, there's so much going on in my life right now that mm-hmm. I just need that consistency of, watching Buffy over and over again or watching Parks and Rec on loop but eventually I'll get to the show I enjoy that show a lot but yeah the movie is my jam it's so good you mentioned Freddy so I got it uh I gotta ask because you picked Ghostface mm-hmm. and when I asked about your other Freddy came out immediately yeah I'm guessing you're a huge Wes Craven fan yes yes he's definitely one of my major influences as a writer um, again, Freddy was kind of the first um, horror villain that I was introduced to. And that's what led me to go seek out Scream because I wanted to see other things that Wes Craven had done. Um, and I really liked this genre of, I, I'm a big final girl person. So like, I love slashers because I love Sydney, I love Nancy, I love Lori, and obviously the villains as well. But I really like this kind of girl next door being able to beat this big bad. And I think that Wes Craven has a huge self-awareness because even obviously with Scream, that's kind of the point. But even in Nightmare on Elm Street there, you can tell that he is very aware of what he's doing as you move through that movie. Oh, I definitely think he's one of the he was one of the best minds in the horror genre, while much appreciated in the horror community in the larger like film world, I think he was underappreciated because he worked in the horror genre. Absolutely. And I think that that happens so often um, because even horror writers um, kind of get written off as, well, they're just writing pulp fiction. They're just writing popular fiction, but it's popular fiction for a reason, right? There's a reason that Stephen King is as successful as he is because people like this stuff. And so, um, and it's even, you kind of see it now with people that are like, ooh, elevated horror. It's just horror. You can't separate yourself out 
from what came before you and try right. to be, well, we're artsy now. Like, no, there's always been an artistic element to it, even if you don't see it personally. No, and that's so true because, sure, you have your schlocky Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. but in the 80s, you still get the shining. Exactly. And, and even Friday the 13th, especially the original, which is my favorite in the franchise, has this edge of it's about a mother's grief, right? So yeah, it's shocky, it's campy, it's gross, it's gory, but it's also got a heart to it, right? Because yeah, Pamela Voorhees is is psychotic, right? And she's terrifying, but she's terrifying because she is so very passionate and so very aggrieved by her son's death. I've never thought of that first Friday or any of the Fridays <laughs> that way to be perfectly honest and because those are movies that it's October I'll either put it on AMC Fear Fest Mm -hmm. or I'll just grab my Friday the 13th box collection and throw on a movie and I'll put it on while I'm doing other stuff no I love that because I I could put I could view Nightmare on Elm Street through a lens like that or Halloween but I never gave the same critical analysis attention to Friday and and I think that that's fair because you're kind of with Friday the 13th, you're kind of waiting for Jason, right? Like he's yeah. dead. And even in Scream, the answer that Casey gets wrong is who was the killer in Friday the 13th? Because everybody kind of sidelines the mother character because Jason is the face of the franchise. But when you think about it, even in Scream 2, when we have Billy Loomis's mother coming back, mm-hmm. it's this same, it's the same character, right? She's Pamela Voorhees. Mrs. Loomis is coming back to avenge her son. And so we have this sort of depth to these stories that on the surface level are just splatter fest, gore fest, whatever, but there's a heart to them. I definitely need to be kinder to the Friday movies. <laughs> I, not all of them, let's let's be clear. <laughs> well, my favorite's Jason X, so <laughs> I, th- I think I'm kind enough. But that one is just so much fun. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of the point of Friday the 13th, because it does, it gets so ridiculous. And I I was never huge into Jason as a villain. Um, I I kind of find him to be a fairly weak villain when you compare him to other slashers. But Mm -hmm. the franchise is just a blast. Like, you have fun watching them. I just like their consistency. Yeah. You know what you're going to get. That's fair. And Jason X is my favorite, because I think that is the one that It's funny because Halloween and Friday the 13th are old enough to influence Scream and then have installments that are influenced by Scream. Yeah, no, no, it's crazy that like kind of this this evolution of this subgenre that it's constantly feeding off of itself and inspiring itself. And that's how we get this consistency throughout the subgenre where yes, it is formulaic and yes, it's all kind of borrowing from each other, but it's in these it's these individual artists take on it. That's like makes them so fun because you know what you're going to get, but it's going to be somebody else's viewpoint. Yes. To bring it back to Wes Craven, I just think he's fascinating as a uh, writer director because he's so thoughtful in his approach to the craft. Absolutely. In every sense of both writing and filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I think A Nightmare on Elm Street's a very good example of that because that one he wrote and directed I think yeah I'm pretty sure but with Scream it was Kevin Williamson writing that and then Wes Craven right yeah yeah but even then I think Wes Craven still had his like that's his film 
Oh, absolutely. Because you know, I mean, you can tell and, and throughout screen too, I think the only movie that was not written by Kevin Williamson was the third one. And you can tell, right? Like it has a different yeah. rhythm to it, but there's still, you can see Wes Craven in it and you can see Wes Craven in all of these movies, even though he wasn't behind the script, right? His direction really right. comes through. And it's interesting because he, I feel like those are like master classes in directing, especially cold open to the, to the first screen. Oh yeah. Nothing will live up to that cold open. Right. And I think Scream has had very good openers throughout the franchise, but that, mm -hmm. but that's just a whole different beast, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, cause it's so, it's very jarring and the tone of it is almost different than the rest of the movie, right? It almost feels like a different movie because even that is like, yeah, we get some pretty gory, pretty gruesome deaths, but nothing like we saw with Casey. And it kind of sets you up for, oh, is this what I'm in for? And then you come right in and you get the jokes and the psycho references and all this kind of stuff. So it's sort of like acknowledging, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like almost the grossness and the gore that people expect from the genre and then kind of dialing it back and being like, okay, but we're talking about these kids who really like horror movies and let's discuss that. And why do we like this? I like that because from a structure standpoint, Scream is really interesting because Scream is a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. It's a murder mystery. It's a horror slasher. It's a comedy. It's almost kind of like a soap opera at parts. Yeah, no, it, it wears many hats, right? It, it's a yes. teen drama, but it's also a horror movie, but it's also a thriller, but it's also a murder mystery. Like it's got a lot going on and it's so well done because I feel like there are some stories where you'll be juggling a lot of these elements and it doesn't really work. But part of the brilliance of this Craven Williamson team up and of the casts of these movies that are consistently excellent, it's it all works. Everybody kind of does what they're supposed to do. They know when to hit the comedic beats. They know when to get really serious. They know when they're being a little ridiculous and when to laugh at themselves. And I think that that's just what makes this franchise so successful. Oh, for sure. And this franchise is its ability to stay relevant. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because the meta commentary is definitely what makes a Scream movie a Scream movie. Exactly. And, and it stands the test of time, right? Because there are some like 80s movies or 70s movies that you'll watch and it is very dated and it very much feels like an 80s or 70s movie. And you definitely have, right? You've got like Sydney's clunky computer and the yeah. silly, those block cell phones that keep falling out of Billy's pocket that are very 90s. But I was just visiting New York, where I'm from, and met up with a friend and her sons are like 12 and 10. And they just watched Scream for the first time. And they loved it. And they got everything that I remember getting out of it when I was around their age. So it really like it holds up and it st is still inspiring young generations of horror fans who hopefully grow up to become horror creators and kind of keep this cycle going. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, Something I want to kind of talk about real quick, because you brought up like it's not dated, even though the technology is very <laughs> dated. And I think a part of that is because Scream and I think this is what keeps its sequels relevant, too, is not only are they kind of time capsules, Scream 4 is commenting on the remake trend of the 2000s. Exactly. 
Whereas New Scream is more about the requel, as it calls it. Yeah. Trend of today and elevated horror. And those elements will be dated. But the truth of the Scream kind of stories is it's kids who love horror movies deconstructing them while being, while there's like a killer out there, you know? Exactly. And it's because I, I like how you describe them as time capsules because they really are, right? Like they kind of stamp what was happening at each time period that the movies came out, right? Because even um, Scream and Scream 2 came out back to back. And that was mm -hmm. something that only a few franchises did. Um, some of them you had like Halloween, I think there was a couple of years between one and two. Friday the 13th did back to back. And it was kind of commenting on this well, which, like, I always love that scene in the classroom with um, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Jamie Kennedy when the whole mm -hmm. class is kind of talking about, um, well, which sequels are better than their originals and what makes a good sequel? Why don't we like sequels? And it was kind of hitting all of those points. Same thing with Scream 4, where we had all of these reboots coming up. And so the franchise was kind of like, all right, let's comment on that. This is what's happening in the world at the time. And it's very much a 2011 movie, right? They bring in the new technology and that kind of stuff. They're being called on their cell phones and all these sorts of things. Even in the new screen, we see her on the home phone with the cell phone being texted by Ghostface while this is happening. So it really is like, it's almost a social commentary as well as a commentary on the genre, right? Because we kind of get what's going on in all these different time periods. Exactly. All right. This is going to sound weird, but this is where my mind went because you brought up the landline in the new one. Yeah. <laughs> and texting at the same time. And it just made me think that's how you know that the Carpenter um, sisters are Latina because no one has landlines except exactly. I feel like uh, um, I'm in a I'm a Mexican American and we have our landline still. And I'm like, why do we do this? <laughs> yeah, because I was like, well, the, the only like unbelievable thing is like, why do they still have landlines? But like some people like my grandmother just could not. She had a cell phone. She kind of knew how to use it. But when we moved into a new house, we got one landline to put in her apartment. Right. Because like that's the technology that she's used to. And I think like mm -hmm. it made for good scenes. Right. Because you yeah. do have this great opener where you can kind of call back to Casey on the landline in 1996, but now Tara has, she's on the landline and she's texting Amber at the same time and locking the doors and the doors are getting unlocked, right? Ghostface is kind of using new, the new technology to his slash her advantage, depending on who's yeah. wearing the mask. I'm going to humble brag for a second, except that was a lie. This ain't going to be humble at all. You don't have to be. I called Amber as Ghostface immediately. Me too. Me too. The minute that Tara got like the video of her, I was like, oh, okay. So that's Amber and her partner, whoever that is. And it's going to be the boyfriend, right? Because we're calling back to Billy Loomis. Mm -hmm. So who else is it going to be but the boyfriend? I'm not going to lie. They got me with Richie. I uh, did a really good job. Oh, yeah. And what it was is the same thing with Billy Loomis. When I first saw Scream for the first time, I'm like, he's a killer. Oh, I guess not. No, he is. Yeah. Oh, I guess not. Because he's dead. 
exactly syrup. right into it right because like through the whole thing with both billy and with richie you get this kind of like oh i know you're definitely the killer and then he does something really nice or gets attacked and you're like oh, okay guess it wasn't him and then you turn around and he's got the mask so they they both have this like charm about them though and the reason why I dismissed him, um, because I was going back and forth, but when the hospital scene, when Ghostface attacks Richie, mm-hmm. this is a podcast. I don't know why I did the air quotation marks. Y- y'all can't see that. Well, now everybody uh, knows he did air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> it was confirmed. But Richie gets slashed in the same place that Jerry O'Connell's character in Scream 2. Um, oh, I, yeah. I think it's Derek. Notice that, yeah. He gets slashed in the same place. And I'm like, Derek was a good guy. Mm-hmm. I should have known they were playing with me still. I should have yeah. known. They're, they're good at I, that. I, actually, I didn't notice that detail. That's a good detail to pick up on. I saw that movie three times opening weekend. I was, I loved it. And I still love it. I, I need to see it again. So Speaking of which, shout out to Radio Silence for making a Scream movie. Oh, yeah. And it feels like a Scream movie. Yes. I was so nervous going into this one. And I remember like when they first announced it being like, oh shit, I don't know if this is going to be good. This is going to be like the only one without Wes Craven. And I remember like kind of just having my radar on Nev Campbell because you know that she just loves Wes so much. Yeah. And he wouldn't sign on to anything that wouldn't carry on his legacy. So the minute she signed on, I was like, okay, I'm on board. But I was really, I was like shaky up until she said she gave her okay. Well, I was straight up, I wasn't even shaky. I like flat out dismissed it at first because, um, I mean, which is not great. That's a little toxic, but whatever. But it's one of those things where it's like, I'm a huge Scream fan and a huge Wes Craven fan, but Scream is like Wes Craven's franchise. Mm-hmm. Even more so than Nightmare. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I was not happy when they announced a new Scream. I love Scream, but I'm like, without Wes, I feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, no, and I, and I don't think that you're alone in that. I think that a lot of people had that hesitation. I know that I did. And as the legacy cast members started to sign on, I was like, all right. They're liking the script. Maybe Kevin Williamson is still doing the script. So maybe it'll still be okay. But I really, I I was hanging on to Nev Campbell's word because I knew that if she took it on, then she believed in it. Then it probably had echoes of Wes. And I know like in the movie when they do the party scene and there's that for Wes. (laughs) Yeah. I like teared up a little bit. I was like, oh, it really is. And it is, it's a Scream movie for Scream fans, but more importantly, by Scream fans, right? Like you can feel the passion behind it from everybody behind the scenes on set. Like it just, it was a labor of love and you can feel that in the finished product. And what really changed like my tune and got me really excited was when Radio Silence was announced. Mm-hmm. Because I love Ready or Not. I think Ready or Not is one of the great horror films of the 2010s. Oh, and I yeah. think it's it's very, well, Scream inspired for sure, but it's very Scream-like. It has, it borrows those elements for sure. And it's, it's also, really it borrows, things. yeah, it borrows those elements, but it's its unique own thing at the same time, which is insane. <laughs> That's oh, so yeah. hard to do. 
because that's the challenge, right? Um, because right. like I read a lot of um, like slasher books. So there's mm-hmm. been a kind of resurgence, which within horror literature, both young adult and adult to do these kind of slasher themed books. And a lot of them sort of follow this scream formula of characters who are kind of aware that they're in a horror movie situation and kind of thinking, because unlike, like I think we get our Randy characters and we get our Mindy's. Yeah and our Kirby's who are very they know the genre and they're using their knowledge to work through it and I think something that I've noticed in the book is that they think that because they know the genre they know how to survive right they're like okay we have to do this this and this and it kind of turns it on its head a little bit which I appreciate because it's sort of like well that's fiction but if you were in real life would it actually follow that formula and would you actually be able to face that ghost face character, whoever that might be. So I I really like that Scream has sort of given us these tools to kind of dissect horror and add to the meta analysis as we go. I'm definitely going to come back to that thought line because the title of the podcast is Would You Die? And that's exactly (laughs) what we'll 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 be. Yeah. (laughs) So mental note um, that everyone gets to know I'm putting a note right there. But yeah, you were saying like, what do you do like and I'm like oh yeah would we die that's the thing that's exactly right because if you were in a screen movie okay you would be able to recognize the elements of what's happening right if somebody decided to be Billy Loomis and follow this through and started killing all their friends god forbid and you were able to figure that out okay you know how the formula goes but is that's a real person behind that mask that's not a character following a script so would you die would you survive would you be able to use your horror movie knowledge to get out of it or would real life kind of trump you and then if someone in real life did that they're also going to be aware of the horror tropes too exactly right they're not yeah it's not happening in a vacuum right like you're not the only one who's aware of it because obviously they are decided to do it for a reason right so oh we'll we'll come back to that for sure i did want to talk a little bit more about scream um 22 scream 2022 new scream the five the scream that's fifth um (laughs) yes the scream that has so many titles because we have to differentiate it from the original I'm not going to lie. I I wasn't a big fan when it was when it got that title because I'm like, really? That's what all the other, you know, exactly. horror movies are doing now. I felt like that was my knee jerk reaction, right? Because it's like, oh, well, you know, we just had Halloween. Like, come on. Yeah. But that's the point, right? Like, exactly. It wouldn't be a Scream movie if it didn't do that. And now that I've seen the new Scream and it's like, oh, it's tackling requels. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little annoyed, but I also love it now. Exactly. And now I think that I get that it, some of my hesitation too, because I don't think that I kind of grasped when they first announced it that they were doing this like commenting on this requel thing. Because in my head, right. I was still thinking of them all as reboots, and I was like, well, they they tackled reboots already, and they tackled them really well in Scream Four. So what's going to be different here? And they did it. I should have known better than to question them we did it i think it's great because it's a very different trend of the of the 2010s than in the 2000s because the 2000s were just straight remakes right yes and um i'm not going to list a bunch kirby does that for me in scream 4 yes but starting in the 2010s it's like and you get this in you know i think the big example is star wars with Mm -hmm. the force awakens 
basically a remake of a new hope mm-hmm. but it has new characters yeah, like it's new make, yeah. but it's not right like we brought the legacy cast back but we're not putting them in those old roles right we're refreshing it with new cast members and and it's a risk i feel like because we've all seen that movie before right, right? so you're kind of going in knowing what to expect and so you have to kind of at, as a writer and as a filmmaker you have to know where to insert those twists or make changes to kind of freshen it up and liven it up so that it's not just rehashing what already exists that people already love. And I love that it tackles tackles that because like it's so many franchises are doing that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone who's a huge Star Wars fan as well. It's always cool when it's like, hey, this thing I liked referenced this other thing that I liked. Yes. Um, I was so happy when... Mindy listed Jurassic Park among the requel craze because I was because I'm like okay that's Jurassic Park's my all-time favorite movie and then I agree (laughs) wait what'd you say me too I love I grew up on Jurassic Park (laughs) did we just become best friends I think we did (laughs) (laughs) actually real quick I have to ask what's your favorite dinosaur Ooh, I love velociraptors okay we're not best friends um but (laughs) but that is a very acceptable and I love velociraptors too especially in the first movie they're so scary they did so like that entire scene in the kitchen I remember watching as a little kid and like Mm -hmm. edge of my seat jumping at everything (laughs) and I loved it like that was kind of another one of those early introductions to like oh being scared is kind of fun and horror movies are kind of fun I've said this on the podcast before but I'm gonna say it again and I will say it as many times as I want Jurassic Park is a horror movie 100 hundred percent. Thank you. Is it scary? Not to me. (laughs) I've seen it so many times. (laughs) Exactly. And it's, and I think it's one of those things because I feel like we sort of tend to kind of cordon off genres in a Mm. way that doesn't actually work, right? Because horror needs other genres in it. Because even bringing it back to Scream, it wouldn't be Scream if it wasn't also a murder mystery and also a teen movie and also a comedy, right? So it's it's horror at its core, but it's got all these other elements. And the same thing with Jurassic Park, where yes, the base is science fiction. We're working within science fiction, but isn't science fiction a little scary? We're talking about the possibility of bringing dinosaurs back to life. That sounds pretty terrifying to me. And sci- science fiction horror go really they like they go hand in hand. I had a conversation with my friend Lucy on the podcast where we really talk about sci-fi mm-hmm. and horror. But yeah, like, I listened to that one. That was a really great one. Oh, thank you. Um, but like Frankenstein, mm-hmm. it's the pillar of it's like the pillar of both genres. Yes, and and it's arguably the birth of science fiction. But where do you see Frankenstein's monster most often? In horror spaces, right? Exactly. So this science fiction story that for the majority of its existence, at least as a book, was understood as science fiction, but it's got these very creepy gothic elements to it that lends itself to horror so, so well. And so much stuff that you could consider to be, I don't want to say pure, but like, hardcore science fiction mm-hmm. is very horror based. So I do think Jurassic Park is hardcore science fiction, especially mm-hmm. the book. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, the book the book is very much science fiction, but it still has like there are scenes in the book yeah. that are terrifying. It's more horrific than the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Steven Spielberg, that wonderful, wonderful filmmaker that he is, had the foresight to be like, kids are going to watch this because dinosaurs. <laughs> exactly. Because, right, you were either like a space kid or a dinosaur kid, right? Like, I, a I lot know. of us were both. Exactly. <laughs> space dinosaurs. Come on, Universal. But, like, hardcore, like, I think of Annihilation as being very hardcore science fiction Mm -hmm. but that is a scary film exactly and we have so many things like i I was super into the whole um zombie craze for a while and a lot Mm. of that is based off of science fiction right because we have it's either a disease or it's biological warfare or sometimes they're just like weird creatures right you have i am legend where like are they zombies are they vampires what actually are they but there is this science fiction element to how they were created and how we ended up with this apocalyptic dystopia. And all of that falls back into horror because once you are in that dystopia, you're terrified. You're on the edge of your seat the entire time. Exactly. The first true modern zombie film is Night of the Living Dead, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Isn't the explanation for those zombies is like a weird rock fell from space? And it's like said on the news or something like that. You think about the time period it was made in, which this was the 1960s. We were really dealing a lot with space exploration and radiation. Mm -hmm. And so I I believe the explanation for it was radiation. It it was these people were kind of infected or however you kind of want to describe it. But it, it was a science fiction element. It was a space rock fell on Earth and brought the dead back to life. Yeah. Night of the Living Dead was 69, I think. So it wouldn't have been at the same time. But Godzilla is a big like science fiction and horror icon because he's both, especially in that first film. Yeah, the last, for those listening, the last episode on Godzilla, like, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So Godzilla is very fresh in my mind if we're talking about sci-fi and horror. And then Mm -hmm. War of the Worlds, same thing. Mm -hmm. No one's gonna say, well, that's not science fiction. (laughs) but uh you can't you'd be ridiculous right but it's a very scary film Mm -hmm. the new one more so than the 50s one but also like i don't think any of us are going to be scared by 50s films anymore no there there are few there doesn't make them less good up right some of them still hold up but they they just look a little cheesy now because we've evolved so far in our filmmaking capabilities they're still good horror movies, oh, yeah, they're but just like, I'm not scared by a lot of today's films. I don't think any I'm, less I'm, of them. Would I have been scared? Like, would baby Lex have been scared if she watched this? Probably because I had a very overactive imagination as a kid and anything could be scary. <laughs> but adult Lex is not scared, but appreciates the horror of it. Um, Cause a lot of it is tonal and it's in the acting and the directing and the specific performances and the sets like all of that comes together to make this atmosphere that is of itself horror and something that i think now bear with me this may sound like a stretch but i i'm really proud of this comparison okay baby austin was traumatized by eight-legged freaks okay and i think you could argue that eight-legged freaks is the scream equivalent to the 1950s sci-fi horror b movies yeah 
I'll buy into that. I'll buy into that. And I'll, I'll raise you too, because I know you've talked previously on the podcast about kind of making arguments that anything can be horror. Mm-hmm. Terrified baby Lex, who watched Jaws way too young, who was watching Jurassic Park and all these things. The thing that I had nightmares about were the apple trees in The Wizard of Oz. Like I was terrified of that scene. Not even the Wicked Witch, not the flying monkeys, but like mm-hmm. that specific scene of them like chucking apples at her and getting really angry at her for some reason freaked me the hell out and that's a horror element in what is arguably not really a horror film but it just kind of shows that horror is everywhere especially in the best children's films if you think about it because the wizard of oz i think is one of the greatest films of all time 100 because it just influenced so much And then Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm like, how did this not win Best Picture? Then I remember, oh, yeah, Gone with the Wind. I get it. Exactly. Any other any other year it would have won. Yeah, exactly. But it's like that's quintessential (laughs) old Hollywood and it stands the test of time. The story structure is great. Like the music is great. I love the music. Yes. It is just influenced so much, but it's scary. Like, especially to a kid. I don't know. I was afraid of the flying monkeys. I didn't know why they were singing about Oreos or whatever they were. Exactly. Like whatever they were singing, but that just the dark scene and them all marching and it like, it's very scary, especially to a kid. Oh yeah. And then I think the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory gets brought up a lot. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's almost a slasher film. You can read it as because it's a group of kids who get picked off one by one. Yep, it is. You can't tell me Willy Wonka's not all the way there, if you know what I'm saying. He's kind of a madman. If a movie ended and Ghostface took off his mask and it was Willy Wonka, I'd buy it, right? (laughs) It would make sense to me. (laughs) Because he has that, that like charisma of a lot of these villains that, right? Because how do you get an audience to like, sympathize, or not even really sympathize, but just like enjoy and have fun with a villain? You make them charismatic, right? Yeah. Would we really like Freddy Krueger if he wasn't cracking jokes all the time? That's part of his charm and that's part of why he's so iconic. And Willy Wonka kind of has that same energy to him where he's got this like cheerful, excited, energetic, and honestly unhinged energy to him that lends itself to Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory being a slasher. We did it, guys. Willy Wonka's a slasher. There we go. We did it. (laughs) I'm so happy right now. (laughs) But yeah, speaking of charismatic slashers, at first I was, when you first said that, I'm like, that's not necessarily true because, but I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I think you could make the argument that slashers are charismatic with the, with the lone exception of Michael. See, I would actually argue for Michael because I I think that there's something maybe not charismatic, but like there's something endearing about him because you've got this like silent character moving about, but even just the way he kind of like tilts his head to kind of look at his work or like is kind of observing things around him. There's something almost endearing about that. Um, and, and it depends on the performance, the specific person underneath yeah. the mask, how they kind of play that. But I think that you can argue the case for Michael being at least endearing, if not charismatic. Um, I'm sorry, I got distracted by your dog's barking. That's okay. Uh, but I think <laughs> it's awful. great because we were talking about Michael Myers, who is the enemy of dogs. 
this is true. This is true. I have to protect my dogs from him. Yes. Yes. And that's why they were barking because we were talking about Michael. Exactly. They were like, no, no, no. We've seen that movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, Michael is really interesting. I love Michael Myers. He's one of my favorite slashers for sure. I almost put him as in a, sometimes I've kind of put him in a different camp than the other slashers. Cause to me, Michael is more like the shark in jaws or the xenomorph. He is a killing machine, no personality, but then he has a head tail. Or have you seen Halloween kills? Yes. Like he's like, stabbing that old man like 1800 mm-hmm. times and he's almost like making what he might consider art well yeah because that's what i i remember i went and watched that movie with my dad and like we both really liked that scene because it was kind yeah. of like does this like staging of his victims in a lot of the movies because even in the original now i'm forgetting i think it was linda when he killed her and he kind of staged her in the bed with the um, gravestone above her. So he he has this like gross, awful creativity to him yeah. that really shines in that scene, right? Because he's kind of considering what he's doing. And it is like somebody working on an art project and being like, okay, where am I going to put them? So there is like some personality to him, depending on the movie and the writer working on it. Michael is so malleable as a I hesitate to say character, right? Because he's the shape. Yeah. He's little more than a plot device, you know? <laughs> but he's so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's so, uh, you're the writer. Think of the word for me. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think, um, I'm because I'm trying to think of how I describe him. And I think that there is something intriguing. He's like an enigma. Yeah. Yeah. He right? draws you in. Yeah, there's something very intriguing about him because you've got this expressionless mask, right? So even when he's looking at you and doing these head tilts, you don't know what his face is doing underneath the mask or if it's even doing anything because he could just be totally blank faced back there, right? We have no idea. Um, And you can't read him. Exactly. And that's what makes him so terrifying, right? Because if you compare him to like a ghost face where largely it's a young person, usually a teenager underneath that mask, there's personality to it. Because there's even moments where we have ghost faces who do the kind of head tilt and things like that when they're doing their kills. But they're also quipping sometimes, um, they're quipping on the phone, um, they're making jokes um, almost in this like Freddy-esque way. Um, but there's there's more personality to it, and you can kind of guess at what they're going to do next based on based on how they're moving, how they're acting. Um, you can like Stu is very erratic when he's ghostface; yeah. he's very clumsy. So you can kind of figure out how to use that against him. Whereas, and Billy is like more intense and more yeah, calculated. Exactly. Michael is. You don't get any of that, right? Like if right. he decides he's going to kill you, you don't get a warning, and you don't get. His movement is very rhythmic. It's very focused. And there's no guessing at what he's going to do next or what he's even thinking. Because even Jason has personality. Yeah. Mm Because Jason is a strong, silent, just like Michael. But Jason is, he's just doing it for mama. Exactly. Like we, you kind of get this sense that he still has, because he died as a child, he still has the mind of a child, right? And he behaves in that way whereas michael ever since he was a child has been killing people with really no rhyme or reason 
and no expression and no guesswork at, oh, he's going to strike now. Exactly. And I don't know how this turned into a conversation about slashers personalities, but I love it. I think it's great. But this is the good thing about horror fans, right? Because especially like slasher fans, when you put them together, this is what we do. We get really excited about this very niche stuff that no one else wants to talk about with us. Right. Because who else is going to be like, you know, the personality behind Michael Myers, that's fucking scary. Exactly. Right. Like if I'm sitting at the bar, no one's going to want to talk about that. But if I find another, if I see somebody with like a ghost face shirt and I'm like, oh, who's your favorite ghost face? we have, you can have like that rapport with them and lead into a conversation like this. Perfect. You just guessed my next question. Who is your favorite ghost face? That is a very good question. And I think, cause, cause I kind of had a feeling that this would come up. And so I was kind of like mm. going through all of them. And I think I, I'm a sucker for the classics. So I am going to go Billy, but I also really, really love Jill in four. Like they're kind of- Well, do of- you want to rank them? Oh, God, I don't know if I can rank them. Um, we can try. We can definitely try. All right. You can uh, try first and then I can try. Or do you want me to go first so you can kind of think go, about it? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Because Do you have a ranking in mind? No, I don't. So I don't know why I, I offered, but let's <laughs> I, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do okay, it. Um, it. I do have all of them listed in like my notes. Mm-hmm. So I um, I'm not like unprepared, but no, I should not have offered. But I will. I'm a man well, of my word. Um, go pairs, I'm going right? to kind of go if you want to like pair them up. But I don't do that. I okay. do it. I okay. do it the right way. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yes. I'm going to start from the bottom. Okay. And I'm going to go with Roman as my least favorite. Okay. And the reason being is to me, he's not a, I like Scream 3, but it is my least favorite of the franchise because for me personally it's the least it's hard it's hard to i watched scream 3 recently because i've been seeing a lot of scream 3 love Mm -hmm. and i'm like well maybe i'm a bit harsh on it and i am scream 3 is a i enjoy that movie i love all the scream movies but scream 3 i would still say is my least favorite and roman as ghostface is a big part of why. But with Roman, I just feel like he he's just a whiny film director for the first two acts. All of a sudden, he's Ghostface. And Sydney's half-brother, which, okay. Weird, right? I'm, I'm not like a hater of that, but they have this big dramatic fight and this emotional hand-holding at the end. And I just, it don't work for me. That's fair. That's definitely fair. What it does for me is it's just so... How it works for me is it shows Sydney's compassion. Mm-hmm. So as a Sydney moment, I love it. Agreed. I, I think but, that three is a really good character development movie. And, and I will say, like, my favorite thing about the Scream franchise is that there really is not a bad movie in the bunch, right? Like, you can say yeah. any of them is your Agreed. favorite. And I'd be like, yeah, you know what? You're right. That's a great movie. Um, But I definitely agree that one, not having Kevin Williamson writing definitely showed mm-hmm. and the constant rewriting that went on made it kind of weird um and also the fact that it's the only one that doesn't have two ghost faces because it was almost like I like Roman as ghost face like I thought that his reveal was pretty cool I think that he did a good job but it was a little unbelievable that he was the ghost face in all of those scenes right like there were some scenes where it's like yeah. okay how did he get there and then go there like it just felt a little messy and like I 
for me, the way I read that scene, Roman unmasks himself and he's he's so dramatic about it. And Sydney looks at him like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because she's very much like, am I supposed to have a reaction? Like, okay, you're a guy. <laughs> and then like, as an audience member, I'm like, who the fuck is, oh, the director. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you don't see him very often throughout the movie he gets like some good and moments. it's like and it's the first time he meets sydney yeah so why why would sydney know who he is yeah that's very true and it's just i don't know for me it don't that reveal doesn't work i don't like roman as a character and i don't like him as a ghost face because for me that's the weakest ghost face he doesn't have any iconic ghost face moments whereas all the other ones do. Yeah. Someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's the film with the least amount of Roger ja um, Roger L. Jackson. I feel like you might be right, because I'm trying to think, and especially because that was the one where they the voice changer could mimic other people's voices. So you mm -hmm. didn't necessarily need that classic ghost face voice because you were using Courtney Cox, David Arquette, all these other people in the voice changer instead of this one steady voice. And I, I liked that element of it because it added that, well, is that actually Dewey on the phone? Is it not? Where's the real Dewey? Um, like that kind of thing. I, I really like that element of it, but I feel like the voice is this one consistency because part of what I really like about Ghostface is that anybody can be under that mask. It isn't this yeah. one consistent character but you need consistencies, the mask, the cloak, the voice to have this slasher figure that can stand up with Michael, Freddy, Jason. And Ghostface is almost like a Batman or Spider-Man in the sense, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone could be the Batman into the Spider-Verse eloquently puts it, if you put on the mask, you're Spider-Man. Exactly, which I think is something that Stanley kind of spoke about throughout the years about why he really enjoyed writing this Spider-Man character. One, because it was usually a young kid and that's kind of fun to play with, with a young teenager given this mm. responsibility. But two, literally anybody can be Spider-Man. You just have to put on the mask. And the same thing goes for Ghostface. You put on the mask- The dark side of that coin. Exactly, right? You can either do it for good and be Spider-Man or do it for bad and be Ghostface. Yes, yes. I love that. So so for me, Scream 3 is the weakest film because I love Ghostface as that alter ego so much. Mm -hmm. And it for me, it's the weakest Ghostface. But I think it's a strong film. I really like Scream 3. Not to put too much shade on Friday. I love that franchise. But Scream mm -hmm. 3 is better than the best Friday movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that you'd get many people that would argue on that. Maybe I would. And that comes from someone who watches Friday. Like, I love Friday. I They're comfort films. Oh, yeah. And, like, they're just fun. Like, it's just, I want to sit down and watch a horror movie. That's the perfect movie to put on. Right. Scream 3 is a good horror, like, a good slasher for me. <laughs> but you compare it to the rest of the Scream franchise... It's not far behind. It's a good movie. It's just for me, because for me, a weak ghost face, Roman just don't work for me. But I do think it's a strong Sydney Prescott movie. It's a great Sydney movie. 
Um, but and, and I think its weak point is, um, and, and people can argue on this, I'm sure that there are people out there who love Roman and who have him as one of their favorite ghost faces. So I, I welcome that debate. But I feel like you need this team, this like dichotomy of Sydney and Ghostface, right? Like you need strong yeah. Sydney moments and you need strong Ghostface moments and you only have one half of the equation in screen three. Right. And I do want to give Scream 3 a little bit more love because Carrie Fisher's in it. She's so good. I remember seeing that mm-hmm. for the first time and being like so excited. <laughs> and uh, I think it has like the best Dewey and Gale story. 100%. Absolutely. Like I loved, I was always there for like the Dewey and Gale storyline throughout all of the movies. And I think that that had the strongest moments. And it also was a really good, yeah. and while I say it was a good character development movie, is because I think that that was the movie where we really saw Gail's growth as a person, right? Like we kind, oh, of, yeah. kind of start to see it in one and two, but I think three is where we kind of shed that very tough newscaster vibe that she has. And we see her, like we see Gail the person and not just Gail, the woman who writes books and the woman who is on the news. Oh yeah. I just want to give that Scream 3 love because I don't want anyone being like, oh, he doesn't like Scream 3. No, I love Scream 3. No, they're going to be like, oh, they're trashing Scream 3. Don't listen to this podcast. No, we we love it, but we're allowed to kind of dig through it. Right. If you want to fight me, fight me on Roman, but I will defend Scream 3. (laughs) There you go. Continuing up the list, I'm going to put Charlie from Scream 4, played by Rory Culkin. Not really his fault. He's just kind of a non-character to me. And I think that he was very overshadowed by Jill. Like once it was kind of revealed what her was and she turned on him, she became that really strong character. And I think you could argue, I think you could argue that Charlie is a worse, is a worse ghost face than Roman. The only reason why I'm putting him above Roman is because I'm pretty sure Charlie does all the kills in Scream 4. I I agree. I think in the same way that Billy was sort of the mastermind um, in Scream 1, Mm -hmm. Jill was the mastermind in Scream 4. So I think that she really only put on the mask when she absolutely had to. But Charlie was kind of her lackey, in a sense, and did a lot of the heavy lifting, a lot of the dirty work throughout that movie. So that she could the victim yes and the olivia death scene is brutal that is one of the most brutal scream throughout the franchise yeah so that one moment puts charlie above roman for me and it's not really roman's fault scream three happened right after um the columbine tragedy Mm -hmm. so that was on everyone's mind so they did that did affect scream three and that is not scream three's fault yeah, that, and that affected a lot of media at the time, um, a lot of horror media, a lot of just teen media in yeah. general. It changed how we sort of looked at certain topics and how we wanted to portray certain topics and particularly violence. And that's to the fault of nobody, right? Because this terrible tragedy right. happened and you, you have to respond to that. There's going to be a public response to that. Exactly. But as a result, Scream 3 for me is the least visceral of the Scream movies, which is not a critique. It's just a personal preference. Right. And it's just a statement about the movie, because I think that you're correct about right. that. And, and that's just a statement not to be like, that's a bad thing. It's just there are gorier moments in other Scream movies that kind of 
echo what we expect from Scream movies that Scream 3 doesn't necessarily have a ton of. I think Ghostface is underrated as a slasher in the terms of he is very violent. Oh, yes. Yeah, the, the most unhinged ghost faces pull off some really brutal kills. Oh, we'll get to them. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We will get to them. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And like, there are gnarly stuff in the Scream movies. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people forget that because it wasn't part of the splatter Friday the 13th or the right. super creative Freddy dream nightmares, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is where the list gets hard. So those are kind of your two easy, okay, I know that these guys are Yeah. They're, they're a good choice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Richie next. Okay. Mostly because he's newer to me. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen New Scream as much of as much as I've seen the first four. Richie's got potential to move up. I don't think he'll move any lower. I agree with that. Um, do you think that he did a lot of the kills, or do you think that it was I think, mostly? Amber? I think it was mostly Amber because Amber is I a agree. fucking psycho. Yeah, like right, like she was much more unhinged, and she is the reason why Mason Gooding. Um, Mason Gooding's character, the uh, the twin. Um, oh, um, what's Chad? Chad, yeah, Chad. Yeah, I think Amber is the reason Chad survived because Amber is so unhinged. She's just stabbing like... He would have been dead, right? Right, but I think those were... Sure, there were 20 of them, but I think those were light, unhinged stabs. Yeah. She was not paying attention. She was full of adrenaline. Yeah. And I think that's why Chad survived. Whereas Richie feels more like a Billy, was it? She had a lot going on in her head at that point, right? Because she's thinking about staging her movie. (laughs) Right. But like Richie is more, to me at least, he seemed to be the more calm and collected one, kind of like Billy. Yeah, I would agree with that, right? Like she was the Stu when he was the Billy. Yeah. So I think Richie was the one who killed Stu's nephew in the parking lot. I don't remember. Was she still with the group at that point too, right? Because weren't they all kind of hanging out at that bar? So I feel like that had to have been Richie. I might be wrong though. And the fact that Ghostface was taller than... Ghostface yeah. was taller than yeah. <laughs> him at the time. Unless she's wearing the heights it, do make a difference. Under there, right? <laughs> That's true. That could have been it. And then I think Richie, I think Richie is the one that kills Wes. Okay. I, I feel like you might be right. Although, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And the only reason why I think that is because I think both of them were there in Judy's house. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I could be wrong. I have no clue. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember because I, again, like it's a, the newer movie. So I haven't seen it enough to like dissect the scenes. Right. So I don't remember at what, because I know that there's one point where Sam calls Richie and he's like sitting in bed watching the stab movies. And I don't know if that was after the sheriff was killed or if I'm thinking of another scene. I don't remember. To be honest, I need to see the movie again. I've only seen it three times, and that was opening weekend. Yeah, and so like, that well, was a few I months ago or two VOD. months ago. Yeah, and like I got it on VOD and um, like watched it a couple of times, but that was just like kind of it was on in the background, and I was doing other things, so I wasn't paying attention. To yeah, like, so I I don't well, remember. I pre-ordered I pre-ordered the 4K, so I'm waiting for that to come in. Okay. So I never buy. I never buy digital copies. 
mm-hmm. because they come with the physical. So yeah. why would I buy the same movie twice when I know I'll get it in the bundle? And I love my physical collection. So that okay. is also yeah. another huge topic we can go off on a tangent on and maybe a future episode. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love my physical copies but digital is so convenient yeah that's why because like I've especially the last couple of years I've been like moving around a lot so I kind of like gave up on collecting I still collect books but I kind of gave up on collecting um like DVDs Blu-rays um all that kind yeah. of stuff because it's just too much to keep lugging around um maybe eventually like I still have my base collection and maybe eventually I'll start back up again but for right now it's just much more convenient to have everything on digital right and I'm in a place where I can just collect what I want. I'm not mm-hmm. moving all over, you know? <laughs> so it's much easier for me to have my physical collection, but it is easy to have like that digital side as well. So I like the fact that the physical copies always come with the digital copy. Mm-hmm. My personal fan thing is I think both ghosts, I think both Amber and Richie were at the sheriff's house. Okay. And I think Amber was waiting outside and it could have been Amber for both, if we're being honest. Because Wes put up a good fight. But yeah, he did. He did. Um, Because I kind of felt like, but but you you can absolutely be right. And it kind of makes sense because I know that there's some debate um, and a lot of people talk about how it was probably in the opening kill, the very, very first kill of the franchise at Casey's house. The kind of general understanding is that both Billy and Stu were there. Um, and that's how yeah. Ghostface is kind of running around the house and in all these different locations. And so I could see that kind of echoing that scene um, with the scene with um, Judy and Wes. And that's what my thought was. I also think they were both at Tara's house. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because that video th- could have been pre-recorded, right? And that's what I think. Like I said, mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but that's how I read the film. Because it's like Richie is supposed to be with where Sam is in the beginning, wherever they are, like a couple hours away. Yeah. But that feels like a Richie moment at the end because it's a taller ghost face. Yeah. It's a more precise ghost face. Because we see Tara and Amber next to each other quite often. Um, I mean, most of yeah. the time Tara is in the hospital bed or in a wheelchair, but towards the end, we do see them together. And the height difference is not drastic. And, and again, that's like the camera's angled in a certain way to make Ghostface look bigger. You can argue that. But it definitely seems like that could be Richie. Right. And I don't think Amber would have the strength to stomp on Tara's leg and break it. Yeah, because she, she's tiny. Amber's tiny. So right. even like, Although, I, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say, although I 100% buy that Amber could have killed Dewey. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. one, yes, I know Dewey's a grown-ass man, but he's a grown-ass man that's been stabbed 20 times, has a limp, has severe spinal like, injuries. Yes, like he's got he's a, a lot. a broken man. That it makes, and he was tired too, right? Because they had just gone through this right. very harrowing ordeal and he's running back into the fray, right? So he's already tired from fighting on top of, having a limp and all these old stab wounds. I think he said yeah. he's been like, stabbed nine times over the franchise. It's probably more than that. Yeah, like, yeah, he's a full grown man. He's a broken man. Exactly. So I totally believe that. And and like, obviously it had to be Amber in that scene because we see Richie, 
Um, and it, it makes right. complete sense to me that she could overpower him. And he was distracted. Yeah. So once she gets the first knife in him, she can do whatever. Yeah. So yeah, after Richie, I'm going to go with Mickey. Okay. I love me some Timothy Oliphant. He's so good. And uh, are you a Star Wars fan at all? A little bit. Do you watch The Mandalorian or the new Boba Fett show? I have not. I keep having it recommended to me and then forgetting to watch it. Um, but I, like I've seen all the Star Wars movies. Okay. I don't think, well, you know, Boba Fett's alive because there's a show. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I don't want to, I don't want to say too much because it's, it's kind of, spoil. it's not a spoiler. It really isn't. You're welcome to spoil it. It's okay. I'll probably forget. My memory is a little iffy, so you're good. Well, Timothy Oliphant has a special place in my heart because he is the only person to wear both the ghost face costume and the Boba Fett armor. Oh, that's very cool. That's a cool career. Right? And yeah. Boba Fett's my favorite Star Wars character. So that's really cool to yeah. me. Um, he does not play Boba Fett, but his character kind of has Boba Fett's armor for a bit. Okay. And he has a really cool character in The Mandalorian. He's called the Marshal, and he kind of ha- he kind of protects a small town in Tatooine. So I think he's pretty cool. Timothy Oliphant has an amazing career, but for me personally, I'm I'm geeking out because who wears both Boba Fett's armor and the ghost face costume? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally. So, but Mickey, he's the only reason why he's in the middle is because I like the other ones more. Okay. That's the only reason. Mickey is great. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not him being lower. It's really him being at like the top of my list. Okay. It's just everyone else's like percentage marks. Yeah, right. Like it's at that point, it's like everybody's kind of on the same pedestal standing next to each other. Exactly. So this is why it gets hard, but that's why I'm just going to pick Mickey a little bit lower, but he is up there for me. I think he's, I think Timothy Oliphant's great. And I think Mickey is a fun, especially when he has Derek hung up unlike the stage yeah. thing mm-hmm. he's doing that mental torture to sydney and he's just like oh he was innocent yep yeah it's really good it's re- and it's really good writing like that entire reveal yeah. scene that like whole extended scene at the end is so good next up i would do amber because i think she is so unhinged and i love how flip-floppy she is I'm sorry. She's just a little bitch. (laughs) Oh yeah, she is. She absolutely is. And she, because you can tell that even when she's kind of flip floppy, it's manipulation, right? Like she's trying to get, because even when she's like, oh, I'm sorry about Dewey. I'm just a stupid kid. Like all this kind of stuff to Gail. You can tell that she's just trying to play to Gail's sympathies and she's gone to the wrong person for that. Right, Gail and right. Sydney have been through too much to fall for that. Oh my God, it was such a cathartic moment when Gail is like, you killed my best friend. And Amber like twists it back on her and he died like a pussy. And then <laughs> boom, yep. Gail just punches Amber in the face. Boom, bitch goes down. Gail, super bitch. <laughs> yes, it's a very full circle moment for Gail, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Yes. And I love that moment. And it's just, and that's why Amber places a little higher because you don't get that moment without Amber. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, Amber, I don't know, she was okay in the first two acts of the film. Mm -hmm. I wasn't neither here nor there about her. Um, She has some funny moments. I don't know, I could have cared less. But then once she gets revealed as a ghost face, 
and she's just like, welcome to act three. And you see how unhinged she is. And she's doing like the crazy eyes with the ee, ee, like. Yeah, no, it's very cool because I feel like in the first two acts, they're kind of pitting her as almost this like Tatum character. Because in the first movie, mm. Tatum is so incredibly supportive of Sydney and backs Sydney 100% yeah. and is always there for her. And we kind of see that with Amber towards Tara, right? Because she's kind of, and throughout it, you know, um, after she's revealed that she's trying to get close to Tara to make sure that she can kill her. Um, but she's kind of positioned in the script as this Tatum character. All of her lines kind of lean into that very protective over Tara. And then she flips completely and becomes the stew. And it's really, really interesting yeah. how they played with those elements of those characters in one person. And the actress, I, I'm blanking on her name now, but did such a phenomenal job. Mikey Madison. Yes, thank you. Thank you for passing me for writing notes. <laughs> <laughs> for being prepared. A professional. Um, one of my favorite things, a professional. I did it, guys. But one of my favorite things is, and other people have pointed this out, but Mikey Madison was also in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, okay. See, I haven't watched that movie. Have you seen that movie? I haven't. I don't want to go any further then, but if you guys seen that movie, there's a direct parallel with her characters. Ooh, and okay. Scream and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So no spoilers, which is surprising on this podcast. I appreciate that because now I'm going to have to go watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've seen it already, if you know, you know. And if you haven't, go watch it. And you're going to be like, I see the parallel. And it's like a, one of my favorite things. That's very cool. I can't wait now. And it's one of those things you're going to watch and you're going to be like, how does an actress get to do this twice in her career. <laughs> now I just so, that she doesn't get typecasted, right? Because you can tell that she's got range. And so if she only got these roles, that would kind of be a little unfortunate. But here's the thing. If you, once you see Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and you see what the typecasting is, <laughs> you're going to want to see that every time. <laughs> okay. I believe you. I completely believe you. And it seems like fun. And it seems like fun. Like she would have a good time. I mean, I can't speak for her. I don't know her. But that's not the worst typecasting. Let me know when you watch that. <laughs> I'm very curious to your reaction. I guess I'm in the top. Oh, I'm in the top four right now. Oh, this is hard. Right? That's where it gets really hard. That's my issue. <laughs> I'm going to go with Billy. You're going to go with Billy? I'm going to go with Billy at number four. Yeah. I respect that. And I love Billy. Billy's great. I just think I like the other ones a little a tiny a tiny bit more and the one that has to go before Billy is his mother Mrs. Loomis okay interesting that's very interesting I I love love that reveal in Scream 2 it's really good I I have to say I feel like Scream 2 has probably one of the best if not the best reveals in the series <laughs> And Laurie Metcalf does such a good job with the crazy eyes. Yes, very good. Especially because growing up, my mom was a huge fan of Roseanne. So I became a huge fan of Roseanne, uh, okay. the show. I have more mixed feelings about the person, but the show was great. Laurie Metcalf is a huge reason why. I think she's one of the best actresses. Yeah, that's yeah. I think she's yeah. one of the best actresses. <laughs> I was like, where's he going? Um, Especially in Lady Bird. Like, I'm still upset she didn't win the Oscar for Lady Bird. Yes, I completely agree. She deserved that. She was robbed. I don't remember who won. I really don't. Me either. Me either. 
And I don't want to disrespect anyone because sure, they're deserving too to be nominated. You're deserving to win. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I, I think it's just my own personal feelings get yeah. in the way, right? And you're like, no, this person was robbed or this person, whatever. And that's kind of like how I exactly yeah. felt so strongly about that movie and that performance. It was so good. But Laurie Metcalf is so good in everything. Like I can't even think of a moment where she kind of like tripped up in anything. She's just, she's very, right. she's on it. She could kind of do anything. Doesn't matter the film she's in, she mm-hmm. does it. And it makes me think of another Roseanne co-star John Goodman I've never seen a bad John Goodman performance and he's been in a multitude of movies yeah just like Laurie Metcalf I think my favorite John Goodman performance is in a horror movie horror movies bring out really good performances and and it's so interesting because I feel like when you think of like the campy B horror movies that the genre kind of tends to be defined by one of the thing one of the elements of that is like bad acting But when you think of really, really good horror movies, they ask so much of the actors, right? They're like really, really emotional and really intense. And that brings about some really incredible performances. And like John Goodman, for example, great across the board, right? I think he's (laughs) been nominated for an Academy Award at least once or twice. And if not, what the hell, guys? But yeah. but he's so good and he's so well ranged. It's just amazing to me that he can him as Sully in Monsters Inc. Mm-hmm. is one of the most heartwarming performances. Yes, iconic. And then you see him, and then you see him in Ten Cloverfield Lane. Yeah, and I think that is the scariest performance from an actor I've ever seen. Yeah, right. And you're kind of like, oh wait, that's how is that the same person? How is that good old Dan from Roseanne? Yep. <laughs> and it's just that range where he can do that. He could play Donnie in The Big Lebowski. He can play mm-hmm. the exterminator in Arachnophobia. Yep, like you literally can just hand him a script and be like, all right, this is what we need from you. And he's like, all right, yeah, got it. And he aces it every single time. Yeah, and it's amazing. I think he's on an HBO show by Danny McBride. So he's still doing comedy. I know he's doing the Connors. Okay. And just like, he's in Argo and he's great in Argo, which is like, you know, a drama thriller. Yeah. Or uh, the Denzel Washington flight movie. Mm-hmm. He plays like the drug dealer and he's in so many Coen Brothers films. Maybe I should do a John Goodman podcast. There you go. You have a lot of material to work with. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, to bring it back to Lori Metcalf, uh, I love her performance as Mrs. Loomis, especially because she's like, this is where the Scream 2 twist works, where the Scream 3 twist doesn't because in Scream 2, Mrs. Loomis only interacts with Gail and she uses a pseudonym. I think she calls herself Debbie Salt or something. So, so Gail is just like, this is some local bitch. I don't know. Like, get out out of my way. To these like, kind of like professional groupies, right? Like she's probably used to Mm -hmm. people who idolize her because clearly she has Mm -hmm. a very good, strong career. So she's probably looking at this person as like, oh, you're just another one of them. And then we get this very powerful reveal of, oh, it was this kind of innocent seeming reporter all along. Until Sydney sees her. Mm -hmm. And Sydney is just like, Mrs. Loomis? Walks her right away. She's like, oh, I know you. It's brilliant because Sydney does not see Mrs. Loomis until this moment. The entire time. The entire time. Because there's so many moments too where like, 
Sydney and Gail are together or at least in the same vicinity as each other. Yeah. And even like Dewey, because you would assume like Woodsboro seems like a fairly small town. So you would think that maybe Dewey, if he knows of Billy, he has probably seen Billy's mother around at some point. Oh, for sure. Um, Especially as a deputy. Exactly. And like, we do know um, that Billy's mother is the one who left, but that means that she was still there for a portion of his life and was probably coming back and forth. So the fact that she stayed hidden from the Woodsboro people entirely the whole time is brilliant and just shows because she's got that they sort of brought that cold calculation from Billy into his mother, right? Like we see where he gets it from when we get the Mrs. Loomis reveal. Yes. And that's a huge reason why Mrs. Loomis is in my top three. That's and I fair. just love the fact that she kills off fan favorite Randy. Yeah. And she just goes, she, he was dissing my boy. I got a little knife happy. Yep. Don't mess with a grieving mother. I mean, don't mess with a mother. Period. Oh, yeah. A grieving mother. On oh, yeah. No. <laughs> and because like, Randy was talking shit on oh, the phone. The whole movie. And and like beforehand too, when he was like, he clocked Billy yeah. right away. And he was like, I know it's you. So the whole time trashing him, he was correct, but he's still trashing mm-hmm. him. I'm pretty sure it's Mrs. Loomis who says one of my favorite ghost face lines, if not my favorite ghost face line, which I believe Roger L. Jackson improvised on set, if I got my story right. And it's uh and it's in Scream Tune and and it's a, uh, have you ever felt the knife scrape through the flesh until it hits bone or something like that? And yeah. I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's so visceral. That yeah. line gets me every time. Especially because it's coming from this character. And again, like we're, we're talking about Ghostface as sort of like this entity that can kind of, anybody can come in and put on the mask and fill the shoes. Yeah. But there are consistencies where we're used to he or she, whoever is under the mask, quipping and being kind of like sarcastic, sometimes a little bit sassy. Like we're used to this playfulness almost from the character that something like that is very jarring to hear anyway, but from a character that's normally very quippy and almost like light, even though what they're doing is not light, it is uncomfortable. Right. And I think the new, um, to give more love to the new Scream, they have a line in that film, which really got me. And it's when um, he's antagonizing Sheriff Judy. And I just love that. Like, I was like, Sheriff Judy. It's so I love weird. how Why he says that. that way? <laughs> I love that. But so when, um, and I love it, but he goes like, Ghostface is just like, I'm going to confess to my two victims. And Sheriff is just like, uh you only killed one person he goes yes but by the time you get here i will have gutted your baby boy and i'm like fuck that's heavy oh yeah it's it's awful and it like it fits with the character but it's so oh yeah imagine what judy is feeling in that moment right because she's she's taught wes like we've seen that he knows how to take care of himself yeah but she's also been through this before Right. She she came in later on in the series, but she knows what's coming. Right. And she tries to call the bluff and she's like, how do you even know what he's doing? Because mm-hmm. have you ever seen Psycho? Yeah. It's so good because he's, you know, taking a shower and the and the filmmakers brilliantly cut to like that psycho shot of the yeah. shower head. Oh, it's so good. And it's also that like callback to right because like Billy's original obsession 
the first movie that we ever hear him talk about is, um, well, The Exorcist, but then Psycho, right? Like, <laughs> his, I was like, no, wait, he talks about the, he's like, oh, The Exorcist was on and it reminds me of you. And like, red flag, just any ladies listening, if a boy tells you that The Exorcist reminds them of you, maybe run away. It's probably not the best thing. That's why I can't get a date. Anyway. <laughs> See, you gotta watch this. <laughs> But but it brings Oops. us to, like he he's got this whole like we all go a little mad sometimes yeah. and this whole like psycho vibe. So we're calling back to that and we're also directly calling back to psycho. Like it's just what I love about this franchise so much. All right, guys, I'm gonna stop it right there because that is about the halfway point of our conversation. Catch my top two screen killers next week as you rejoin Lex and I on our epic Ghostface conversation. In the meantime, you can find Lex across the internet at, at symbol Lex Vranick or visit LexVranick.com. That is L-E-X for Lex, V-R-A-N-I-C-K for Vranick.com. If you liked what you heard, please rate, share, and subscribe. You can find the show's social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Sign Would You Die Show. The music featured at the beginning and end of each podcast episode is composed by my good friend Josie Palmer. You can find the Would You Die YouTube show on Three Wise Men Media, where you can also find professional wrestling, trailer reactions, and much, much more. Tune in next week when we finish talking our beloved ghost face. It's going to be a scream, baby. Until then, I'm Austin Torres. Try not to die. Have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone?